you choir. Do you hear what I hear? It's interesting that that's what our choir would sing today because we're not only going to try to hear what God is hearing, but we're going to try to see through God's eyes. A star, a star, dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. Do you see what I see? People of God, I dare say that we all see different things, but I wonder how deeply we see these things. In our adult lives, we have sort of lost track of our imaginative, deep-seeing abilities. But ask any kid that is in this room or any kid among you, they will remind you of what it's like to see the impossible or see possibilities in every little thing. For example, we all have beds to us. We sleep on them. To kids, they're trampolines. They jump on them, right? Amazing, the possibilities that kids can see. For us, it's a place of safety. For them, it's fun. And then for us, it becomes a place of danger where they can break their neck or an arm or something. We see, uh, amen, sister. All right, yes. And then there's dinner time. A PB&J to a kid is like fine dining, isn't it? I do admit I love me a PB&J on white bread. The only thing better is PB&J on a tortilla. <laughs> Amen. Come on, sister. <laughs> but today we're going to be challenged. We're going to be asked, what do we see? Behold, this morning, will you pray with me? Loving God, we are in this sacred space, acknowledging you among us, acknowledging you within us. And Spirit, we just ask you to open up our eyes and our spiritual eyes to truly see, not just in this space, but in every moment of our life, just as God sees. It is in your name that we do pray, and we all say, Amen. Well, you read our gospel passage this morning. I'm going to ask you to take that back out, if you will. If you have your Bible, pull it out. If you have your bulletin, pull that out. I want to ask you, what do you see in the Luke text? Now, one thing is obvious. We see a bunch of difficult names to pronounce, right? <laughs> Thank you, Vicki. You did splendid. I told her to say Lionel and Robert and Bob to substitute, but she wanted to go the hard route. We see hard names. We see John proclaiming a baptism of repentance, but there's more. Look at the text. Behold it. I wish you could see it in a new way. Ask yourself. Is there more going on here than you might have seen before? I ask you, to whom and where does the word of God come? Where? The answer is right in front of you. Somebody yell it. John, yes, John the baptizer, the star of this morning's lectionary text. You saw that already, but now do you notice where the word of God did not come? Did the word of God come to the emperor in Rome? Did the word come to Pontius Pilate in Judea? Did the word come to King Herod in Galilee? To his brother Philip? No. Did the word come to the ruler of Abilene? Did it come to the high priest in Jerusalem? Can't you see? All these positions of power and authority, all those whom the masses feared, those who claimed to speak for God, the word of God did not come to them. No, 
Instead, it comes out into the wilderness to someone on the outskirts of society, to someone who has no authority, no position of power in the world. People of God, the word of God in our text comes to John the baptizer, someone who, according to our orthodox Christian tradition, was known to wear leather and have a strong affinity for hair, so much so that his clothes were made out of camel's hair. The word of God, the good news, comes not to the mainstream authorities, but rather to a person covered in hair and leather. Do you see it? Someone who has been so ostracized by society that he is relegated to living in a slum out in the wilderness. People of God, you got to see with new eyes. What do you see when you open up our scripture text? Now, one would think that God would send a word to those in power, those of influence, those who have clearly been blessed in society. And yet we see in this text and in so many other texts in our Gospels that God sees that which is out of plain sight. Not just those at the center of society, but those at the very margins. It's amazing what happens when we truly behold, when we look and linger, when we truly focus and see anew something that we have never seen before. It is amazing when we strip ourselves of our own ways of seeing and instead, as Brian McLaren says, see with God. To be able to see with God and see how God sees. Oh, how do we even begin to accomplish such a feat? We hear in the gospel that John proclaims a baptism of repentance, a ritual that represents a new beginning. Now, you all know what uh, repentance means. When we hear repentance, the first thing that comes to mind is some sort of act that represents us saying we're sorry, right? It represents some sort of a, a, a contrition, some sort of act of forgiveness. The word for repentance in our text this morning does not mean I'm sorry, though. Though that can be quite healthy, quite meaningful, and quite appropriate at times. But rather, in our text, the word repentance means a changing of one's heart, a changing of one's mind, a changing of one's outlook. You see, when John calls people to partake in the ritual of baptism, he is asking folks to change how they see the world around them, to see what God sees and to see how God sees. When you look in the mirror in the morning, do you see how God sees? When you look to your neighbor, to your left and to your right, do you see with the eyes of God? In every situation, do you ask yourself, how is God seeing this situation right now? How is God viewing this person right now? And I'll tell you, I'll be the first one to admit that sometimes we'd rather not see with God's eyes. And the truth is, we enjoy acting blind to the presence of the holy. We enjoy being blind to the responsibility that it carries. Because if we choose to see with God wherever we are, we might not curse out our partner the way we do. We might be slow to anger, heaven forbid. And how else are we supposed to get what we want if we don't throw a temper tantrum, right? Heaven forbid we might eliminate some of the injustices of this world and begin treating everyone with respect and dignity. 
we'd have to reinterpret our entire lives, even revisit some pains of the past. There's a topic that has been rarely been talked about in my family, and truth be told, to this day, no one still likes to talk about it. And I'm sure you've all experienced something so painful, something that hurts so much, something from your past that all you wanted to do was move on and try and forget what occurred. We might even try to erase our memory because of the experience, because of the feelings and the emotions that come up and rise within us. These are much too much, much too much, much too much to deal with now, much less when they originally occurred. I was in middle school when it happened. I was in middle school, and it was a regular day in middle school, as much as middle school can be regular these days. After school, I had music, of course, um, being a band geek, always keeping busy doing different things. But it was a regular day, and my grandma was supposed to pick me up after school, but she did not arrive. Now, that wasn't unusual. I mean, she was usually late. But truth be told, I was always later than she was, and so she had always ended up waiting on me. So the fact that I was waiting for her, that was the unusual part. And yet, so I, after a few minutes, nothing happened, she didn't come, but then my uncle drives up in his car. Now, once again, this wasn't particularly unusual, because sometimes my grandmother working as many jobs as she did and trying to feed as many people as she did and trying to pick up as many of her grandchildren from school as she did, sometimes she could not make it to do every little thing. And so my aunts or my uncles would sometimes come and pick me up. And so this was not unusual. And so I told my uncle, hi, I got in the car. I said, where's grandma? He said, oh, well, she's tied up with something. She couldn't come. Didn't think anything of it. Got in the car, listened to some music, small chit-chat, and we went along our way to grandmother's house. Well, when we got to our neighborhood, there were a lot of cars parked on the street. And a lot of these cars are very familiar because they were cars and vehicles of my aunts, of my uncles, family members. This is late afternoon. They're supposed to be at work, and here they are in our neighborhood. And as we turned the corner and saw grandmother's house, I noticed it wasn't just the cars of my aunts and uncles. There were police cars. There was an ambulance. I didn't know what was going on, and I said, what's going on? And my uncle calmly said, oh, someone broke into the house. I was stunned. I was shocked. Did they, did they take anything? Did they catch him? He's like, well, they're working it out right now. And so we parked. I got out of the car. I kept my distance. You know, in my family, whenever the adults were talking, the kids had to be on the other side. You didn't interrupt, folks, because something might happen. You got in trouble. And so, the hey, I heard a lot of amens on that one. I saw my grandparents talking to the police. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, everything's good. Maybe they're just going to work out, you know, whatever was stolen. Maybe they'll catch the culprits, whatever the case may be. Well, time passed. I mean, minutes Minutes upon minutes, and after almost an hour and a half, still, everyone's still standing around. The police are there. I'm watching the door and just watching. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty observant kid at this time. I'm pretty smart. I'm trying to put two and two together, but I have no idea what's going on. And then I see the front door to my grandmother's house open. And out come walking two police officers with paramedics holding my aunt on each arm. 
walking as slowly as can be. Literally, I am almost 100 feet away, but I can see her shaking. You see, it wasn't just a home invasion, but my aunt was home. She was sexually assaulted. I'm trying to put two and two together, and I know something is up. And imagine now, I'm just standing there. None of my cousins are there. All the adults are just, you know, gathered around. I can't even run over to my aunt. I can't even go talk to her. I can't even give her a hug. I can't get anywhere near the ambulance. Now, there's much more to this story and how it impacted my aunt, but that is her story to tell. But what I'm telling this morning is how it has impacted me. You see, my aunt and I were always very close. She wasn't too much older than me. She was the youngest of ten. But she always took care of me. She always watched out for me, bought me snow cones, anything I needed. Summers, we would spend time together. She would always stick up for me when my mother wanted to whoop me or get in trouble. She was always there for me. And yet in that moment, I couldn't be there for her. That next day, those next couple of days were the hardest. No one knows. You know, in our family, it's just the adults, they do their thing, and you don't talk about it. You don't talk about what you feel. You don't talk about how you're impacted. And yet we all know that we are impacted when these things happen. And so the days, uh, a couple of days after, I'm feeling a lot of things. I'm feeling blame. I'm feeling shame. I'm feeling guilty, like it's partly my fault that this has happened because I could not be there. What if I would have just come home early? What if I would have skipped practice? What if I would have called in the sick that day? Maybe I could have been there and deterred the uh, home invaders from actually coming in. Maybe, just maybe. No matter how irrational my thought pattern is at this point, it happens. And you all know these moments when there's nothing we can do and yet we still blame ourselves. We still have the guilt. We still have the shame and we carry it as if we could do something, but in reality, we could not do anything. There comes a point, or there came a point in my life, where, uh, in that next year, imagine now, a year, no one talks about it. My mother told me about it a few days later, that it was actually a sexual assault. Yes, I put two and two together. I knew that. But there was no way to process my feelings and what I was going through. And so let me get it. I'm a straight-A student at this time. All of a sudden, my grades begin to suffer. I'm down. I've usually got a smile on my face, and all of a sudden, I'm not smiling like I used to. And if I am, it is very fake. I can look at myself in the mirror, and I know what is really up. And yet, there came a point in my life where I could not carry that blame and shame no more. There came a point after that occurred where I said, you know, I can't carry it. It's done. It's over. God, take this from me. And as I began to take off my own lenses, not literal lenses, but my own lenses of how I interpret things and put on the lenses of God, I began to see that there was nothing I could do. There was nothing for me. There was no blame for me to carry. There was no shame for me to carry. There was nothing that I could have done, so why am I blaming myself? People of God, I eventually came to a point where I had to see with God's eyes. We can't change the past, but we can see it differently, I tell you. 
we can see it from a different perspective. Maybe there are experiences from your past that affected you directly or indirectly, but either way, they affected you greatly, did they not? Maybe you've been blaming yourself for things in which you truly had no blame to carry. Seeing your past from God's eyes, we begin to see that God doesn't blame us. Maybe certain experiences caused us guilt, but see the situation from God's eyes. God wants no one to be shamed and no one to be guilt-ridden. God sees our hearts and says, I don't blame you. You are already forgiven. I see your past, and I still love you, and I will always love you. We cannot change our past or the choices we've made or the choices others have made. We can't change the facts of our lives, but thank God we can change how we view our past. People of God, we can't change people, but we can always repent and see things anew. We can always look, at, uh, look back. We can always look to our past and find things to blame, find things to shame, find things to judge. Or we can take a totally different look, one that recognizes the facts of the past, but also the truth of the present. You see, facts, truth, there is a difference. Facts, truth, there is a difference. As I looked at the commentaries this week for Luke 3, I was amazed at how many people were just arguing, all these scholars arguing and debating about whether Luke is historically accurate or not. Because when you follow him, you begin to see that he doesn't line up with ancient Roman sources. He doesn't line up with the Jewish historian Josephus. Sometimes his historicity just does not add up. And that scares a lot of us. Because are you saying that uh, uh, the Bible's not factual? From Genesis to Revelation, it has to be or else we throw it out. People of God, facts are different from truth. You see, as I began to look through and read these pages upon pages and articles, I began to say, it's like, what's the point of all this? And you want to ask my opinion? After rigorous years of academic study, after thousands of dollars of being in school, after 10 plus years of studying the scriptures, I, from my perspective, the facts just don't matter. It's just information. That's all it is. It's only fact. But what does matter is the truth behind it. You see, Jesus spoke in parables, right? He taught in parables, stories. These things weren't true. Or these things weren't factual, yet they had a spiritual truth. We don't have to prove that there was a prodigal son to know that there are prodigal children who return home and can return home at any time in their lives. We don't have to prove that the Gospels were a biography because that's not the point of the Gospels. The Gospels are to teach and spread good news. And amen, I will take good news over a biography any day of the week. Amen? There are things that we have to separate if we see with new eyes, it's not just about the facts, it's also about the truth. A story doesn't have to be factually accurate, but we know facts do happen. And there are facts in the Bible, I'll be the first to admit it. But it doesn't really matter. Just like it doesn't really matter what facts have occurred in our lives. I tell you, forget about the facts and see the truth. It does not matter. Thank God, just like the scriptures, when we view ourselves in, God eye, in God's eyes, when we look in the mirror, it's the same thing. 
no matter the things that have happened to us, nothing can change the truth of who we are, that we are marked as God's own, beautifully and wonderfully made, loved always, today and forever. Thank God, people of God, that as you look through this mirror, you will always reflect the face of God, and you will always be able to. Deepak Chopra says, don't be fooled by appearances. We are all God in drag. We are all God in drag. And to Deepak, I say, yes, guru, but sometimes that disguise is really good. We hide God much too well. But I encourage you, this Advent, to see with God as we prepare for a Christ child to be born anew in our lives. If you are expecting God to operate a certain way, ask yourself, where can that occur? Now, throw off your own lenses and put on the lenses of God. Expand your horizons. What if you began to engage in repentance and have a different outlook? What if instead of seeing God in the bad things only, you see it in the good things? Spirit is always moving, seeing with God's eyes, not facts, but truth. And if we do this this Advent, as we look forward to the birth of the Christ child, we will see that there are more miracles that can occur than ever before. And we can see with new eyes, with God's eyes. Amen.